Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This Sunday is the sixth Sunday of Easter in year C. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. We will be reading our first reading, who remains in the book of Acts, with Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 15. The epistle text, Revelation chapter 21, that's going to be verses 9 through 14, and then jumping ahead a little bit for verses 21 through 27. The gospel reading, again, your pastor has an option here with John chapter 16, verses 23 to 33, or he could go with John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. For the sake of the podcast this week, especially since neither of those gospel readings appears anywhere elsewhere in our lectionary, we're going to try to briefly cover both. But we begin in the first reading with Acts chapter 16, verses 9 through 15. Before we jump in, this is part of Paul's second missionary journey. At the end of chapter 15, as he prepares to go, he and Barnabas end up having their quarrel over the role of Mark on their journeys, and they split over it. Mark had been with them on the first missionary journey and had abandoned them in the midst of that journey to return home. We're not told why, so we don't want to read too much into that ourselves. But Paul was not happy with such a thing and didn't trust that he could take Mark with him on the next journey and not be abandoned again, whereas Barnabas wanted to. So they split ways. Barnabas and Mark will go somewhere else, and Paul is going to end up picking up Silas, and the journey will grow as they go. But this is the second missionary journey, then, for the Apostle Paul. We're going to start here, verse 9 and 10. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, it's important to see this text, really, if you're looking at Paul's missionary journeys, to have a map of the Mediterranean Sea available. This is likely as simple as typing into any um, web search bar the idea of Paul's missionary journeys, and then using the image results that you find, you're going to easily find lots of different maps of that. So that's helpful to pull one of those up. You're going to find that if you're looking at the Mediterranean Sea, Israel, of the Old Testament or the New, in the New Testament we talk about Judea, Jerusalem still, that's going to be to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. As you go up that eastern coastline, you're going to reach what we now call, in our modern day, Turkey. But they called it Asia or Asia Minor at the time. As you turn left or west, (laughs) as you walk through Asia Minor, it's going to bring you eventually to the Aegean Sea. And as you head north from the Aegean Sea, At that point, you're going to run into Thrace, and to the west of Thrace is going to be Macedonia, and then as you head down to the southwest or the south from Macedonia, you'll end up reaching Achaia or Achaia, and that's where you'll find a city like Corinth. Helpful to have this layout again to be able to see this all on a map, have it laid out for you. The first couple of verses just before verse 9 here, we would learn that Paul and those traveling with him had been seeking to do mission work in Asia Minor, but the Spirit had prevented them. In the first missionary journey, Paul never makes it past Asia Minor. He ends up in Asia Minor for quite some time, turns around, heads back to 
Antioch and Jerusalem. Here, as they start out, the Spirit is going to push them further. And that's what we see in verses 9 and 10. They are going to have a vision. Paul is going to receive a vision, a dream in the night, uh, that a man of Macedonia is standing there. Macedonia, again, is going to be up northwest of Asia Minor, even northwest of the Aegean Sea. And it's probably best known to you, biblically speaking, because it's going to be where the cities of Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica are. So Philippi, the Philippians, Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, two of our New Testament, three of our New Testament letters. And then Berea is famed for the Bereans and their their deep study of Scripture, which is good. So those those cities are going to be part of this second missionary journey as the Apostle Paul makes his way to Macedonia. And that's the vision. Come over to Macedonia and help us. So verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I don't want to pass up the word we. Guess who else joins Paul on the second missionary journey other than Silas? And if you're reading your your ESV, the subtitle's probably already given you the idea that Timothy will join this journey too. Back in verse 1 even in the text. But it's Luke. Luke is a physician by trade, as we know. He's also a historian. He loves history. He loves recording history. And he takes up the gospel account that he does, um, recording the gospel. He was not there for it, but he's learned it. He's studied the events, and he's written that letter to Theophilus, which could be the name of a person, uh, or it could be a title. Theos is the Greek word for God. Philos, love, so lover of God, those who love God, he's sharing the gospel with them. I tend to lean towards it being an actual man, uh, which is the way that the text itself seems to read, uh, which is why I go that route. Anyway, Luke writes the gospel account, and then he will follow it up with a second book, and that's this book. The book of Acts is written by Luke, as he would see back in Acts chapter 1. Luke writes this because Well, on the one hand, he's writing it because he wants to give more of the history of the church. The gospel account is the life and ministry of Jesus. The book of Acts is essentially the the life and the ministry of the apostles, uh, the, the birth of the church. And this is a good thing for us to see. Where I was going with that, though, is he can write this because he's been there. Luke travels on these journeys with Paul. Luke learns the story of the gospel from Paul. Luke gets all of these things. He gets all of the details for the rest of the text from having been with Paul. And he learned the previous details, again, from from just being able to talk with Paul and, and hear Paul's stories. So this, that's an important we. It's the first time it shows up. Luke is subtly shifting here to introduce himself into the text. And he never does really introduce himself but it becomes a first-person plural pronoun. All right, so their call is to go to Macedonia, preach the gospel to the people there. So the Spirit is pushing Paul's ministry further. Verses 11 through 15 now. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together, 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So we continue to get some details about their journey here. They they set sail from Troas, which is going to be in Asia Minor still. It's a port city in the very northwestern corner uh, up against the Aegean Sea. And they take a voyage to Samothrace, which would be part of Thrace, and is thus located at that, that region in between Asia Minor and Macedonia. So this is a stop along the way, probably about 30 miles to the northwest. And the next day they travel much farther. Uh, from Samothrace to Neapolis is a westward trip, kind of, I would say, northwest-west, close to a 100-mile journey, though, uh, and it's on the very edge of Macedonia. So they've made it to Macedonia at this point after just a couple days, and then they travel to Philippi, which is, again, in this region of Macedonia, off to the west. It is, as it's described to us, a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, Really, it's the Roman retirement colony for their soldiers. Their veterans like to go to this place. So it's a very prosperous Roman city and a major place. And so this is where the the missionary journey, in a sense, really begins on this second trip. So we remained in this city some days. Not told how long, just some days. On the Sabbath day, so the Sabbath day still being observed by the Jewish culture, as a day of rest, Friday night when the sun goes down until Saturday night when the sun goes down, that 24-hour window. We went outside the gate to the riverside. In looking at a map today, this would be labeled, if you use Google Maps, for example, you can find Philippoi, F-I-L-L-I-P-P-O-I, or you can find Crinides, K-R-I-N-I-D-E-S. Either of those two cities and they're right there together and just to the west of them, and by just, I mean like a thousand feet to the west of them, there are multiple tiny rivers that Google Maps doesn't even name. So this isn't a major river that we're talking about in the text here, but they went out to the river, they went out to the place of water where you might find the local people. And in particular, they were looking for a place of prayer where people might be praying. Water is a source of life. Right, life-giving water. You need water to live. You need water for your family and so forth. So water sources commonly result in people coming together. Prayer, in that sense, thanking God for the gift of water, thanking Him for the gift of life that could be. Anyway, they sit down, and there are women who have gathered around them, and so they start talking. One of these women is named Lydia. Lydia is one of those women in the New Testament that a lot of people are familiar with. And she is, we learn, from the city of Thyatira, which is actually not in Macedonia. It's way back over in Asia Minor, off to the southeast. Most notably, I think, most notably ought to be that she's a worshiper of God. We'll come back to that. Most notably, I think, though, people remember Lydia for this seller of purple goods comment that Luke records here. Purple is expensive. The the dye 
in order to make the color purple for clothing and garments and such is rare and has to be imported from far away. I mean, we think of purple and how do you make purple? You get red and blue. And again, same situation. Both red and blue are also rare. So to be able to make purple, not an easy task. It's an expensive thing. And so if she's selling expensive goods, that probably means that she's fairly well off herself. There's not going to be a mention of a husband in this text. We'll come back to that here in just a moment. She was a worshiper of God. Again, I think that's probably the most important note about her. This is the sort of language that depicts that she trusts in the Old Testament. Again, we're not told that she's a Jew. She is from Asia Minor. She's from Thyatira. She's probably a Gentile. Paul is going to spend a lot of his missionary journey among the Gentiles, even though when he goes to a city, he often will go to a synagogue. Philippi is an exception. I can't say for certain that there was no synagogue in Philippi, but again, it's a Roman colony, so not a Jewish not a Jewish city. He used to go to the synagogue because they had the Old Testament scriptures and he could point to Jesus from the scriptures. So here, anyway, Lydia, for whatever reason, whatever the connection was, she has become a God-fearing Gentile, which is another way that the New Testament, especially here in the book of Acts and Paul's writings, will refer to those Gentiles who have trusted in Yahweh of the Old Testament. And so Lydia Look at that. Her, the Lord opened her heart. One of those things. We, we can't come to faith on our own. It's a gift. And even here, even though she believed in the Old Testament God, which is God, I mean, this is Yahweh, and now she just needs to hear about the Messiah, and so Yahweh opens her heart so she can hear about the Messiah, so that Paul can tell her about how Jesus has come to do what God has been promising in that Old Testament for so many years. And she believes. And she's baptized. We skip over that, really, right to verse 15, after she was baptized, and her household as well. I want to pause on that. Households, not immediate families, very different in this point in history. Your household would consist of the, the husband and wife, their children, servants, and their families. It could also consist of various other relatives. So you might have a a sister that didn't get married or her husband had sent her away. You might have a cousin or someone else uh, closely blood-related who had fallen on hard times financially. Your household could consist of any number of people, perhaps elderly parents as well. So anyway, it's not mentioned a husband here for Lydia. It doesn't mean she isn't married. It doesn't mean that when it says her household as well, that her husband isn't baptized. We just don't know. At the very least, being, again, well off because she's a worker of purple goods, we should expect that her household includes servants who help her in that work. She urged us, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She bases they're staying with her on her faith. That if they don't believe she's a Christian, by all means, then keep moving. Do what you need to do. But otherwise, if if you think I'm faithful to, to the Lord, just come, stay with me, and let me take care of you is essentially the picture. And so she provides them that hospitality, as we see Luke says, she prevailed upon us. Hospitality was a major part of that 
society at that time, and the Christians certainly took it upon themselves to be hospitable to all that they knew. This is possibly the new home of the Philippian church. I don't know that for certain, uh, but the church, the way the early church functioned was as house churches. So the the community of Christians in any location, they would gather for worship not in a church, not in a physical building, because their religion was illegal according to the Roman Empire. They couldn't build a church, it would just get burned down and you'd get arrested. So instead they met, I would say secretly, but they met privately within homes. And to house the worshiping saints in that place, you would need to have a probably a larger home than most people had. And so it was often the wealthier members of the church in a given community that would host the church. It would be their home used as that house church. So it would make sense that Lydia's home may have well become that first church in the city of Philippi. Again, don't know that for certain, but it's interesting to think about. The epistle text for this weekend continues us in the book of Revelation with chapter 21, verses 9 through 14, and then 21 to 27. Now, I did point out last week as we read chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, that we would be skipping verse 8, we talked about it last week though, and that we would then be picking up with verse 9, but that we really needed verses 9 and 10 to better understand what we were reading at the start of the text of the chapter as you see that new city of Jerusalem back in 21 verse 2, and it's not really a city at all. It is the bride of Christ. It is the church, and that's what we see here at the start of the text this week, and really the whole text is going to be about the bride of Christ. It's going to be about the beauty, the splendor that is the church, that is God's people. Uh, Imagine this chapter, imagine this text like the description of a bride on her wedding day. Because again, we are, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. And this text is going to so so richly describe the appearance of this city. In other words, so richly describe the splendor and the beauty of the bride of Christ, this woman that is the church. And Revelation will picture the the church as a woman also back in chapter 12 uh, as the one who gives birth to the child, the Christ that the dragon was trying to to destroy, and that would be Satan seeking to kill the Christ. It's going to start out with uh, what we need to go back to chapter 17, really, to see a parallel for. And But before we do that, and I do have that pulled up here on my computer, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Chapter 16 gave us the bowls. And the bowls, the seven bowls being poured out are the judgment of God being poured out upon creation. So that you have the three cycles of sevens. You have the seven trumpets, the seven, sorry, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls or the seven censers, as some translations will use that word instead. All three of them are depictions essentially the same thing, just slightly different angles here. It's a repetition for learning the The idea is the suffering that is in creation because of sin. And the the first ones, the seals, are going to be suffering caused primarily by, by the consequence of man's inhumanity towards our fellow man. So we suffer 
because we sin against each other. And then the seven trumpets are going to take a little bit of a different shape, the suffering that is brought about by the brokenness of creation. And so you've got natural diseases, disasters mentioned in such a place. And then this third set, the seven bowls, again, more in line with God's judgment, that, that sin in this world is judged by God. And so that's going to bring, again, suffering. So after chapter 16 and the seven bowls, one of those angels comes to the apostle John, and here's what we read at the start of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So, pause, that's enough. Here you see this this parallel. We don't know if it's the same angel or not. It's one of the seven in both cases. But the, the repetition that they both come to John to show him something, to reveal something to him. In chapter 17, it is the good news that the one of the beasts... So, chapter 13, Satan summons two beasts, the political beast from the sea, that is earthly governments, and the religious beast, so false teachers, from the land, in order to help him in his battle against the church, in order to help him attempt to deceive and destroy individual Christians within the Lord's family. Since he found out he couldn't kill Christ, he found out he couldn't destroy the church, he shifted his gaze to the lone sheep. And this is the target for then the two beasts. And that's what makes chapter 17 good news. Chapter 17 is the destruction of one of these beasts. We actually see how they work together in chapter 17 as well. But ultimately, chapter 17 does lead to the destruction of the second beast. Chapter 18 kind of circles back and shares the destruction of both beasts. Anyway, it's good news. Here in chapter 21, one of these same seven angels is going to show a similar vision to John of good news, but of a different kind. Once you get to chapter 21, God's judgment has occurred. The last day is in the past. It's in the rearview mirror, if you want to phrase it that way. And now, now we're in paradise. And John is getting to see the bride of Christ. He's getting to see the church in her splendor celebrating life everlasting. That's the picture of chapter 21. So he's going to show John the bride, the wife of the Lamb. All right, I'm realizing I haven't read any of the text yet, so let me read verses 9 through 14. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of Israel the lamb. Now, one of the most common things that you'll see, if you go ahead and just read through the entirety of Revelation 21, you're going to be noticing that the number 12 shows up again and again and again and again and again. I, by my count, and I haven't counted it today, I haven't counted it in a while, but by my previous count, I remember getting up to 15 uh, times that the number 12 shows up. And the number 12 in the book of Revelation 
is the number of the church. So we're going to see the Old Testament tribes, right, in verse 12. So the 12 Old Testament tribes, the sons of Jacob, Israel, uh, becoming that nation. And then we'll also see the 12 New Testament apostles, right down in verse 14. So this is both the Old Testament church and it's the New Testament church. It is the fullness of God's people of all time, and that's something we miss actually in the text that we skip over, but we'll come back to that. So back to verse 10, this very common revelation uses Old Testament language, and so Ezekiel in his writings, the prophet Ezekiel, oftentimes is described for these visions that he is given by God as being carried away in the spirit to some place to be shown something. And so in the same way that John is carried away in this vision by the Spirit, this time to a great high mountain. That's the idea that he would be able to see uh, far distances. He'd be able to see far away, sort of like Jesus being taken up in the temptation account by the devil to the top of the temple so that he can see all the, the land around. So John gets to see a wide area, but very specifically the angel showing him the holy city of Jerusalem, which again, chapter 21, verse 2, is introduced to us. But here we learn it's not a city at all. It is the bride of Christ. And this city, this bride coming down out of heaven from God, has the glory of God. The glory of God is the that which makes him worth being looked at, that which makes him worth being seen. And that is the salvation that he has achieved for us, that he has earned for us by the blood of his Son. And you have that as the church, as, as a child of God, as the bride of Christ. You have his salvation. It is a gift has been given to you. You get to reign with Christ in his paradise forevermore. So we have the glory of God. Then we are described radiance like a most rare jewel. Radiant because God has made us so. He has clothed us in his own righteousness. Again, I, I mentioned at the outgo here that you want to look at the description of the church and her, her beauty in this text. So like a most rare jewel, that would be a precious thing, a very expensive thing to have a rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. That clarity is going to show up in 21 again as gold is described like transparent glass. So the clearness as a reference to the purity of a stone, and thus to its value. The, the purer a, a thing is, the more expensive it becomes, as we know. Just, just try to buy one, and it'll, it'll cost you, it'll set you back. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels. Now this is going to be a picture of protection. Walls, right, city walls, fortification, protection from intruders, from, from danger, from harm, and the angels standing guard at the gates. Like in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fall into sin and the Lord removes them from Eden, and then he places the, the cherubim, the, the angels, outside the, the entrance to the garden, and also a flaming sword. Now, it's true that in paradise there will be nothing for us to be protected from. There will be no danger, there will be no sin, there will be no death. The devil will have no power over us any longer. I think it's fair to already say the devil actually has no power over us because we are in Christ, but in a different conversation. Anyway, the picture of God's protection is also a picture of God's care. 
that he will protect us, he will provide for us forevermore, and because we are safely in him, we will face no harm ever again. And that's sort of the picture that we want to pick up on with this. So 12 gates, again, the number of the church, and you have the 12 tribes represented, so the Old Testament saints are involved in this. Verse 13, three to the east, three to the north, three to the south, three to the west, just like they were camped around the tabernacle. If you want to learn more about that, go back to Numbers chapter 2 as God's tabernacle, which was his temple before it was permanent. The tent of meeting, as it's sometimes called, it was a portable house that housed his, his throne, the Ark of the Covenant, where he promised he would dwell in the midst of his people. And then he literally did, as you think of, you know, draw a rectangle and then put three dots on each of the four sides of it. That's what the camp of Israel looked like in Numbers chapter 2. Are the 12 gates aligned with Numbers chapter 2? I couldn't tell you. As we will see, well, we don't see, we skip over the, the 12 stones in, in between. It's in, in that missing texture of the chapter. And those don't exactly line up with the 12 stones in the Old Testament ephod. I don't know that we get to write anything into that. It's just we get to look at the parallels and enjoy the parallels that we see. Then we get verse 14. The city, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So now we've got the New Testament church involved in this picture as well. 12 foundations. I'm happy that my house has one foundation. That's not quite the same meaning here to this this word, this context, but the the idea of support, the the structure, uh, the the base. So this is a firm foundation to build upon. Again, we skip over verses 15 to 20. Of course, I invite you to read them. It's God's word. It is good. Uh, A little bit of what you would see if you're reading through that section that the Lord himself is going to measure his city with a measuring rod made of gold. Old Testament prophecy, the idea that God would measure a place or a city is the idea of God's protection of that thing, that he knows it so well, right? If he knows it intimately, he's going to seek to care for it intimately. So the measuring is a, a sign of his protection, but also that this is a measuring rod of gold uh, brings in the idea of holy and perfect. That this city that he is measuring is holy and perfect, that it is is worth his protection. And again, that is the beauty side of this, that his bride is, is so beautiful to him that he will protect her and care for her. Then we see uh, that the, the city is a cube in its shape. It's 12,000 stadia, Uh, in each direction, which is a Roman measurement that would come out to about 1,380 miles. So again, cubical in its shape. So you've got cubic. (laughs) It's 1,380 miles wide, deep, and high. 1,380 miles, by the way, is roughly half of the United States if you were to cut the country in half on a map. But then you that's only two-dimensional. You'd have to make that three-dimensional, make it a cube instead of just a square. 
and then go ahead, just for the sake of verse 21, go ahead and coat the whole thing in gold. The picture of, of beauty and lavishness and luxury and great worth. This is how Jesus sees his bride. This is how Jesus sees you. That's what you really want to pull out of this text. It's going to be coated in gold. Gold in the Old Testament tabernacle picture, the closer you get to God himself and his presence, which again, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne in the midst of the temple or the tabernacle, the closer you get, the more stuff is made of gold. You're out in the courtyard, the altar for burnt offerings is bronze. Um, You come closer and you've got some silver pieces. But as you get inside, uh, things are much more made out of gold, and, and some of them purely from gold. If I remember correctly, the lampstand, for example. So we are described here, coated in gold, we are described as being holy and perfect, as we are now close to God. A couple of parallel texts that you could pick up for the missing section here. First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, describes us as being built up as a spiritual house with Christ as the cornerstone. Isaiah 54 verses 11 and 12 talks about how God would rebuild his city with precious stones as its foundation. And also again, the the priestly garment, the ephod, the breastplate that had the 12 stones in it for the Old Testament high priest. All of this kind of matches up with the the section that we miss out on in in those 12 stones. Then you get 21. We jump back into where we are in our text that we'll have read this weekend. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I'm going to pick up on the pearls first. You can get, again, talking about something pure, uh, the, the greatest of material, if you take a pure pearl, even if it's just a few millimeters in size and its diameter, it can be worth as much as $100,000. This city gate, so not just the door, like, okay, picture the door of whatever room that you're in right now. That's a door. That's not a city gate. A city gate is going to be significantly larger than that. One pearl, a pearl that size has then been carved down to make a gate. This is not a literal picture, although you do certainly hear people talk about heaven this way someday, like, you know, Peter is waiting for us at the pearly gates. That description is what it is. Uh, Don't put much into that. But this, what this is getting at is the idea, again, of how great a value the, the bride of Christ has. I can't even begin to estimate how much a pearl that size would have been worth. And that's how Christ sees you as his bride. Hallelujah, right? Thanks be to God, he sees us in such a way. And then again, the gold as well, transparent. It is so pure, you can see through this gold. And the whole city is covered in it. All 12,000 stadia, which by the way, I forgot to mention that 12,000 stadia is the same idea as the 144,000 number from earlier in the book of Revelation. 12 is the number of the church. 10 times 10 times 10, the number for completeness, cubed, again and again and again. And then you have that 12,000 cubed. So the complete, 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 
completeness of God's church. That's the picture of this holy city. All right, last paragraph, verses 22 to 27. I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is setting up a picture. We are meant to see this in the way that Old Testament Israel has seen it. Some version of the tabernacle or the temple, God's house, where he promised to dwell in their midst and he promised to speak his word to his people. Some version of that stayed among the people of Israel for roughly 1,500 years. And by the time that John comes around, it's gone. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. He writes this about 20 years later. There is no more Jerusalem. There is no more temple. Not in the physical sense of this world. And so he's telling us about this new Jerusalem. And so just as you had the Old Testament people of God with their capital, which was a symbol for them as the holy people of God of Jerusalem, and then you had the temple in its midst, which was where God was promising to dwell and to speak. Now in paradise, you, me, we together are that holy city. We are the new Jerusalem and God will dwell in our midst. He is the temple himself. Just picture a bunch of people with Jesus right there with us all. How wonderful is that? We will need nothing because the God who creates all things simply by speaking will be there speaking to us. Just fathom that. I mean, pause the podcast and think about the beauty of that for a moment. Uh, That the Lord who provides for every need, he can simply speak what we need into existence and he will care for us forevermore. I mean, fantastic. And so that's the picture here. This idea that Jesus himself is the temple is something that's already being picked up on in the New Testament. I mean, Matthew 12, 6, we learn something greater than the temple is here. John chapter 2, verses 19 to 21 is that section where you see Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, speaking about his death and resurrection. He was speaking, as John says, about the temple of his body. So we're seeing that in the New Testament already, and this is the fulfillment of it. Paradise has no temple, no physical temple as a building made out of stones because it has Jesus. He is the temple. God literally dwelling right there among us every day for forever. And, 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. So this is going to be, picking up on Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19, really this is another description that lays out paradise as being even more different than whatever we know now this new heaven, this new earth from the start of the chapter that has no suffering, no sin, no death, no crying, no mourning, no pain. It also had no sea. Now it has no sun. It's so hard for us to fathom what paradise is going to look like. We know Jesus will be there, the God and source of all good. 
is there and we will be there with him and that is all that matters. It will be glorious. And so it is Jesus himself who will shine on this city. The glory of God gives it its light. Remember Moses in Exodus chapter 34 after seeing God, how his face radiated light and people couldn't even stand to look at him. Or in the Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, as Jesus began to radiate light. Or John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Thinking about that last phrase here, as God gives it its light, its lamp is the lamb. Psalm 119 Verse 105 is one that will come to mind for many. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We won't need a son because we'll have Christ. And he will give us all that we need, including the light by which we see. By its light, which I believe that's a reference back to the lamp, just a few words before, so Jesus still, will the nations walk. People from Every nation from every tribe, every language will be there in paradise because the gospel has reached the ends of the earth and kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Thanks be to God that even some of the leaders, some of those who are are caught up as a part of the first beast that Satan tries to use to destroy the church, even some of them are faithful. Even some of them are part of God's people, saved, redeemed, part of the bride, the church, forevermore. Verse 25, that its gates will never be shut by day is again that picture of protection. You shut your city gates at night for three three primary reasons. The first is enemies. City gates are shut, makes it harder for enemies to attack and invade. Thieves. If If you have thieves that are trying to come from outside of your city to come in and steal, plunder, it's a lot harder for them to do that if the city gate is shut at night. They're less likely to sneak in during the day because you're not sneaking in a city gate in the day. Everybody sees you come in. And then beasts. Uh, the, the idea that wild beasts might be more active at night and seek to come in and harm the people within your city. Again, there aren't any enemies. Thieves are predatorial beasts in paradise, but it's a picture of protection. And it's the picture that it and, and really, this place, they'll never be shut. Those, those things won't be there. The Lord will protect us. He will care for us. But there will be nothing, nothing that can harm us. This would be like if the world were actually nice enough again that you could open, open up your door of your home and never have to worry about closing it or shutting it or locking it. We certainly don't live in a community like that today. If you leave your home open, you're inviting harm to your family. Not only this, gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. No sea, no sun, no night. Again, very different than anything that we know. No night because the darkness, the darkness doesn't have the light. And Jesus is the light and we have Jesus with us forevermore. That does bring up the interesting question, will we sleep in paradise? I don't know. Um, we, will, we will have Christ as our rest. How's that? Okay, verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Philippians 2 might be appropriate here, the idea that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
But the honor of the nations is her people. We think of creation, the idea that man, after man was created, creation was suddenly very good instead of just good. Many talk about man as being the crown of creation because of that. You could look at it the other side too, that they they bring the honor, that is, they honor God. So all nations honor God. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. Uncleanness in the Old Testament is the idea of being separated from God and being separated from the community. Nothing unclean will enter it because nothing in paradise will be separated from God or the community. We'll all be together forevermore. And again, this was verse 8 that we skipped, but we talked about last week that the murderers and the sexually immoral and so forth don't enter. The unrepentant don't enter. That's picked up again here. What is detestable or false will not be there. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is a great little phrase. The Lamb's book of life. Chapter 3, verse 5, 13, verse 8, 17, verse 8, 20, verse 12, 20, verse 15, and here in 21, verse 27. And also one other time in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. These are all the references to the book of life where you actually see that phrase. There are other times in the scriptures you can pick up on the book of life where it's just not talked about with the exact language. Luke 10, verse 20. Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. Daniel verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Psalm 69, verses 27 and 28. And Psalm 139, verse 16. A couple of others that are possibly, but we are, I'm not positive, are the book of life. Exodus 32, verses 31 to 33. Psalm 56, verse 8, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 16. Those may also be about the book of life. I'm just not quite certain enough to guarantee it. Now, as you look at those texts, you can have a fun study on this. But the best one, Revelation 20, hands down. If you go back and you read Revelation 20, the picture is basically given that on the day of judgment, all those who seek to earn paradise by their own works, all those basically who do not trust in Christ, will be judged by their own books. So imagine a book is compiled of everything you've ever thought, said, or done. I don't want to know how many sins would be recorded in my book. And such a book is being kept for everyone. And on the day of judgment, everyone is judged by what is written in their own book. Except... For those who trust in Christ, for those who trust in the Lamb, they will not be judged by their book, but they will instead be judged by his book. And his book is filled with the good things that he has done. He has committed no sin, so there's no sin in it. Only his good thoughts, his good words, his good deeds. And that his name, his, his book consists of our names. That we are his good works that he has created, that he has redeemed. Just fantastic stuff. And then so on Judgment Day, you're not judged by your works, you're judged by his. You're not judged by your book, but by his. And this is that picture from Jeremiah 31, verse 34, that the Lord will forgive our sins and he will remember our iniquity no more. And so that's why on Judgment Day, we're not judged by our books. He hasn't kept that record He's throwing it away. He literally, even though he's omniscient, he knows all things. There's one thing he does not know, and that's our sin. 
What a fantastic picture. So this is this is a wonderful text. Um, again, Revelation 21 ends up being one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. It's all God's Word. It's all wonderful. Um, but to come back to this one again and again, to see it for the beauty that it, it is, because it's the beauty that Christ sees in us. I look at myself, I don't see such beauty. But to know that my God looks at me in such a way, thanks be to God. And he sees you just the same. Pretty typical. Gave myself a little time to talk about the gospel text. Part of that is because I would estimate that probably more than half of the sermons preached in LCMS congregations get preached on the gospel text. So it's, I think it's useful and beneficial and good to study the other parts of Scripture um, thoroughly so that we can see them. So I gave myself, I guess, about five minutes for each of the two gospel readings. Let me start with John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. And I'm just going to read it all together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. Seems like a fairly simple, straightforward text. We don't know which feast it is here in verse 1. The Jews celebrated multiple feasts, just as you have multiple holy days, holidays on your calendar today. Uh, The Lutheran Study Bible, for whatever reason, suggests this might be the Feast of Booths. We just don't know. That's not said. But Jesus goes to Jerusalem for it, which could be an indication that it's one of the three holy days of the year um, where the Jews are required to go to Jerusalem. And you've got the, for that, it would be Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the other name for that. And then you'd have the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, as we more familiarly know it. And then lastly, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem for this, and as he's in Jerusalem, he's by a particular gate of the the city, and it has a pool, which is called Bethesda. Now, you might have noticed that a lot of Lutheran um, care facilities of various kinds end up using this name Bethesda. So you'll have many Bethesda nursing homes that are out there, um, or care communities, or, or so forth because it connects to this text. Beth or Baeth is the Hebrew word for a house, and Aramaic is very close to Hebrew. Um, So the idea here, probably house of grace or house of mercy, is what that that phrase ends up meaning. And it has five roofed colonnades. uh, Colonnades basically covered porches, patios. And so you've got this this area that is well shaded during the day, and you have... Many of the least of these, as Jesus would call them, who gather there. Why do they gather there? Well, the shade would be nice. But there's more intent to this. And we lose one of the verses. For those of you who are uh, more on the observant side, you'll probably have picked up the idea. Verse 4 is missing 
It's just not even there. It skips from three straight to five. If you've got a good um, scripture, a good Bible that you, you work from, there's probably going to be a footnote on that. So here's the footnote from the ESV, the Lutheran Study Bible. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. That's not in our text. Why is it not in our text? It, it seems to be that, so as the way that manuscripts, the way that the New Testament was gathered together is that as it was written, as a letter was written to a church, they would make copies of this letter and they would send the copies off to other churches. And so the the more a letter was received, the more a letter was used in churches, the more it spread around the, the New Testament churches. And those that spread the most are the ones that are in your New Testament. But as you think of copying by hand an entire book, uh, you can imagine making mistakes as you were writing. Uh, most of the mistakes are spelling errors that we have in the various copies that we have. But from time to time, you can see that the guy that was making the copy, uh, he just changes a word. Oftentimes, it's like a pronoun. So he is changed to Jesus or Lord so that you know who the he is. It w these changes were not made with the intent of, usually, with the intent of somehow distorting or destroying the word of God. But if a scribe made a change, it was usually by accident, or he would add something into the margin to help you better understand it. So verse 4 tends to be believed to be one of those things that maybe a scribe had added into a margin to tell you the tradition, the idea that was behind this text. And then at some point, somebody saw it in the margin and thought that it was supposed to be in the text. And so some of the copies that we have of John's gospel include that verse and others don't. So it's good to keep it in the footnotes so that you know about what the tradition was, what they believed and thought, um, but it's not believed to be God's holy and inspired word. So I hope that's a helpful background to that. But it does make sense of the man's response as we go through the text at the end. Again, it seems like a straightforward passage here that Jesus heals this man. The, the interesting thing is when he says, do you want to be healed? The man says he can't get into the pool fast enough. So hence why that missing text could be beneficial that they had this belief that the Lord worked miracles in that pool, that whenever it was stirred, whenever an angel stirred it, whoever was in there first was healed of whatever infirmity they had. But because he can't walk, it's not easy to get into the pool first, unlike, for example, someone who's blind. So he's not recognizing that Jesus is the one who can give him the healing. And even in the example, if that tradition's true, which we don't know, but even if it is true that the Lord is working such miracles, Jesus is the one who worked those miracles. The source of that miracle is now standing right in front of this man. And so he tells him, after 38 years, he simply tells him, take up his bed and walk. And the man does, and then we get the note in verse 9 that it is the Sabbath, when this happens, and so verse 16 is going to pick up on that and say this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this is one of Jesus' many healing miracles that he performs on the Sabbath day because it's worth it, right? 
man is not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath is meant for our good. And for somebody who's been paralyzed for 38 years, there's not a lot better rest than to be healed. And this is good. Don't prevent the teacher from doing good things. All right, so that's the first of our two gospel texts. The other option for the gospel reading this weekend is John chapter 16, verses 23 through 33. And again, neither of these used anywhere else, so that's why I'm covering them both for you today. The idea here is to continue the conversation from last week. You had the choice of 13 or 16 last week. If you did the 16 reading, this picks up right where that one left off. But in either case, chapter 13 or 16, those were both parts of the conversations that Jesus had with the disciples at the Last Supper. John doesn't really talk about the actual giving of the Lord's Supper. He just gives us the details about what they actually discussed at the meal. And so this is more of that if you're doing verses 23 to 33 this weekend. It just picks right up on chapter 16, verse 22, which we ended with last time. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I'm going to cover that first, and I'll cover the second, well, the second and third paragraphs together here in just a moment. So, you have sorrow now as a reference to Christ's crucifixion that he's about to die and the disciples are going to be greatly grieved by it. But they will see him again, which is then a reference to his resurrection, and that because of that, their hearts will rejoice. I love this little word, rejoice. It means to joy again, right? Think of the English language when you stick re in front of something is to do it again. So repeat, we rejoice, we take joy again. So the disciples' joy was crushed. At least they thought. But then they'll see Jesus alive, risen from the dead, and no one will be able to take this joy from them. It's not a joy that lasts for a moment. It's not a joy that can be snuffed out. It is a joy that lasts forever. Every year during the Easter season, it's a tradition, and it's a new tradition because the movie's only six years old. There's a movie called Risen, which I think is a, a fun one. It attempts to explore what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. As you can imagine that the Romans were very much interested in what happened to the body, as were the Jewish officials. So what happened? It's a fun movie for that extent. It gets you thinking. And most of it is just outside of what the Bible actually includes, so it's just a fun way to think about things. Anyway, there's a scene where a Roman tribune has has one of the 12 disciples. He's basically brought him in for interrogation, and he, he threatens him in that scene. But it's one of my favorite scenes in the film because this man, Bartholomew, um, the, the actor does such a great job of just being joyous, even in the threat of persecution. He's just, I think it's fair to call him giddy because his joy can't be taken away because he knows Christ lives. He knows he will live no matter what. And again, that's, that's a film. I don't recommend a lot of Christian films. Um, I don't find a lot of them to be that helpful, but I think that one's a good one. Anyway, in that day you will ask nothing of me. So in the in the resurrection, I think we can really push that even further. 
to the resurrection of the dead, which is a reference to the last day when Christ returns, um, this whole asking and receiving section that truly, truly, Jesus says that 25 times in Luke's, uh, John's gospel account, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So we're not asking of Jesus now. The disciples who have been with Jesus for these three years and they've relied on him for everything, now they will seek things from the Father as we also seek things from the Father. So you have, you have asked nothing in my name until now, but ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I'm going to point to that. This is one that Christians struggle with many times. You know, I ask God for stuff. He said, ask and you will receive. I ask him for stuff, and yet I don't get it. Why don't I get it? James chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James picks up on this idea that that our asking should be for something specific. Our asking should not just be on what the body lusts for and longs for. Our asking should be connected to something greater. And that's what comes across here in, in verse 24. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Asking the Lord for a nice car is not going to fill your joy. Honestly, even asking the Lord for for daily bread will not necessarily fill your joy. It's Jesus. Jesus is our joy. And so asking that the Lord would bring us to paradise, asking that the Lord would redeem us, save us, and help us speak that good news to our neighbor. I mean, Paul will talk this way in his epistles that, that they are his joy because he will be with them in paradise together with Christ, one body, part of that bride that we talked about in Revelation 21. All right, I'm going to, like I said, 25 through 33 together. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what we see here, um, Jesus basically telling them that he will no longer be speaking to them in parables and other things that are difficult to understand. The hour is coming when he will tell them plainly about the Father. I wonder if that hour is a reference to John chapter 15 where he tells them that he is going to send the Holy Spirit upon them and that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth and will give them the truth about Jesus, the truth about the Father. Because we talk, I mean, the hour in the text is often a reference to Christ's crucifixion. In Christ's crucifixion, you can see 
the the love of the Father. You can see the the forgiveness that the Father so longed to give to the world, and that's John chapter three verse sixteen, the the famous passage, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you can see some of that, but I do wonder if the Holy Spirit might not be more in mind here with verse twenty five. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So what what is salvation? What does it what does salvation require? Well, that we love God and believe in Jesus. It's not really a demand of us because we can't do those things on our own. The Spirit creates those things in us. The Spirit is the one who who places faith, creates faith, grows faith in us. He is the reason why we can believe in God, why we can love God. And so because we have that faith, the Father, the Father saves us. Thanks be to God, thanks be to the Holy Spirit. So I came, verse 28, from the Father, have come into the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So Jesus returning to the place where he has come from, we know in the ascension, uh, which is coming up in next week here, that Jesus ascends to the heavenly Father. He sits in the heavenly throne room at the Father's right hand, and he reigns over his creation forevermore. The disciples think that they now know things. Uh, they've often often misunderstood things. It's a huge point in Mark's gospel account that the disciples just don't get it. John's not quite as hard on disciples as Mark was, but they don't get it. They just don't, and they think that they do here. And they say that they, they don't, no one needs to question him anymore as though they're somehow testing whether he knows things or not. Now they know he knows all things. This is why we believe that you came from God. And yet, what are they going to do in just a couple hours? They're all going to scatter. They're all going to run away from him, which is what he responds with. They don't truly get it yet. They don't get what this is about. They don't get where he's going. They don't get why he's going to die on the cross. They don't believe that he's going to rise from the dead. Pentecost, when Jesus pours out that Holy Spirit upon them, when he will tell them plainly about the Father, that's when they seem to as we would say, the light bulb goes off. That's when they get it. Finally, everything comes together because the Spirit teaches them all truth. So, behold, the hour is coming. Like I said, that's a reference to the crucifixion. Indeed, it has come. You will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me alone. So they do. They, they run away. They depart from Christ. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. This is one of those tricky passages then because we often talk about you'll hear people discuss how Jesus is abandoned by the Father on the cross. I take caution with that because while yeah this verse the Father is with me I am not alone. The Lord is with his son. Jesus on the cross says my God my God why have you forsaken me? And when he says it we can talk about, and most of the time do focus on what that means between father and son, but it's also Psalm 22's opening line. Just as we name our hymns after their, their opening lines, Jesus was citing Psalm 22. All those Jews, the, the religious leaders and the, I'll, I'll just call them the laity that are there, 
they get to hear Jesus quote from Psalm 22 from one of their hymns. And so I, I picture it this way. If I were to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, you would be able in your mind to start singing that hymn. So it was for Psalm 22. It's one of their hymns from their hymnal. As Jesus says it, they could bring that to mind and they would be able to make the connections. I'm thinking it's intentional, right? That they would make the connections that show in Psalm 22 that Jesus is the Christ and that what he's going through on the cross, that he would be crucified, is even prophesied in Psalm 22, that he would do that on their behalf. So even in his dying words, Jesus is still seeking to care for the people, just as he did with the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Peace, reconciliation with God, war over, no more fighting between God and men. And really, these end up being the first words Jesus speaks to the disciples after the resurrection. As he appears in the house among them when they were locked away for fear of the Jews, he says, Peace be with you. My peace I give to you. In the world you will have tribulation, suffering, trials, pain. It will not be easy for his disciples. And this is true, and it ought to also be true of us, really, if we're not too in love with the world. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So the disciples will meet grisly fates, but they don't have to fear it because God is for them. God is with them. God has already conquered sin, death, and the devil on their behalf. They have nothing to fear. Truly, God's peace is with them, and in the same way it is with you. No matter what the world does to you, no matter what it throws at you, no matter what trials and hardships, no matter what torture and pain and suffering, you are his. He is already victorious, and because he is victorious, you are victorious in him. Because he lives, you live. He has overcome. And so have you. Hallelujah. Amen.